This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Brown. The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. Part 2, Section 10. I have already shown in the instance of the two last verses of Chronicles and the three first in Ezra, that the compilers of the Bible mixed and confounded the writings of different authors with each other, which alone, were there no other cause, is sufficient to destroy the authenticity of any compilation, because it is more than presumptive evidence that the compilers were ignorant who the authors were, a very glaring instance of this occurs in the book ascribed to Isaiah. The latter part of the 44th chapter and the beginning of the 45th, so far from having been written by Isaiah, could only have been written by some person who lived at least 150 years after Isaiah was dead. These chapters are a compliment to Cyrus who permitted the Jews to return to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity, to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, as is stated in Ezra. The last verse of the 44th chapter and the beginning of the 45th are in the following words. That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee, etc. What audacity of church and priestly ignorance it is to impose this book upon the world as the writing of Isaiah, when Isaiah, according to their own chronology, died soon after the death of Hezekiah, which was 693 years before Christ, and the decree of Cyrus, in favor of the Jews returning to Jerusalem was, according to the same chronology, 536 years before Christ, which is a distance of time between the two of 162 years. I do not suppose that the compilers of the Bible made these books, but rather that they picked up some loose anonymous essays and put them together under the names of such authors as best suited their purpose. They have encouraged the imposition which is next to inventing it, for it was impossible that they must have observed it. When we see the studied craft of the scripture makers in making every part of this romantic book of schoolboy's eloquence bend to the monstrous idea of a son of God begotten by a ghost on the body of a virgin, there is no imposition we are not justified in suspecting them of. Every phrase and circumstance is marked with the barbarous hand of superstitious torture, 
and forced into meanings it was impossible they could have. The head of every chapter and the top of every page are emblazoned with the names of Christ and the Church, that the unwary reader might suck in the air before he began to read. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 has been interpreted to mean the person called Jesus Christ and his mother Mary and has been echoed through Christendom for more than a thousand years and such has been the rage of this opinion that scarcely a spot in it but has been stained with blood and marked with desolation in consequence of it though it is not my intention to enter into a controversy on subjects of this kind, but to confine myself to show that the Bible is spurious and thus, by taking away the foundation, to overthrow at once the whole structure of superstition raised thereon. I will, however, stop a moment to expose the fallacious application of this passage. Whether Isaiah was playing a trick with Ahaz, king of Judah, to whom this passage is spoken, is no business of mine. I mean only to show the misapplication of the passage, and that it has no more reference to Christ and his mother than it has to me and my mother. The story is simply this. The king of Syria and the king of Israel... I have already mentioned that the Jews were split into two nations, one of which was called Judah, the capital of which was Jerusalem, and the other Israel, made war jointly against Ahaz, king of Judah, and marched their armies toward Jerusalem. Ahaz and his people became alarmed, and the account says, verse 2, And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. In this situation of things, Isaiah addresses himself to Ahaz and assures him in the name of the Lord, the cant phrase of all the prophets, that these two kings should not succeed against him, and to satisfy Ahaz that this should be the case, tells him to ask a sign. This, the account says, Ahaz declined doing, giving as a reason that he would not tempt the Lord, upon which Isaiah, who is the speaker, says, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And the sixteenth verse says, for before this child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest, or dreadest, meaning Syria and the kingdom of Israel, shall be forsaken of both her kings. Here then was the sign, and the time limited for the completion of the assurance or promise, namely, before this child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Isaiah, having committed himself thus far, it became necessary to him, in order to avoid the imputation of being a false prophet, 
and the consequence thereof to take measures to make this sign appear. It certainly was not a difficult thing in any time of the world to find a girl with child or to make her so, and perhaps Isaiah knew of one beforehand, for I do not suppose that the prophets of that day were any more to be trusted than the priests of this. Be that however as it may, he says in the next chapter, verse 2, And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Here then is the whole story, foolish as it is, of this child and this virgin, and it is upon the barefaced perversion of this story that the book of Matthew and the impudence and sordid interests of priests in later times have founded a theory which they call the gospel and have applied this story to signify the person they call Jesus Christ begotten, they say, by a ghost whom they call holy and on the body of a woman engaged in marriage and afterward married, whom they call a virgin, 700 years after this foolish story was told, a theory which, speaking for myself, I hesitate not to disbelieve, and to say, is as fabulous and as false as God is true. See footnote. In the 14th verse of the 7th chapter, it is said that the child should be called Emmanuel, but this name was not given to either of his children otherwise. This name was not given to either of the children otherwise than as a character which the word signifies. That of the prophetess was called Mahar Shalal Hasbaz, and that of Mary was called Jesus. End footnote. But to show the imposition and falsehood of Isaiah, we have only to attend to the sequel of this story, which, though it is passed over in silence in the book of Isaiah, is related in the 28th chapter of the Second Chronicles, and which is that instead of these two kings failing in their attempt against Ahaz, king of Judah, as Isaiah had pretended to foretell in the name of the Lord, they succeeded. Ahaz was defeated and destroyed, a hundred and twenty thousand of his people were slaughtered, Jerusalem was plundered, and two hundred thousand women and sons and daughters carried into captivity. This much for this lying prophet and impostor, Isaiah, and the book of falsehoods that bears his name. I pass on to the book of Jeremiah. This prophet, as he is called, lived in the time that Nebuchadnezzar, besieged Jerusalem in the reign of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, and the suspicion was strong against him that he was a traitor in the interests of Nebuchadnezzar. Everything related to Jeremiah shows him to have been a man of equivocal character. In his metaphor of the potter and the clay, chapter 18, he guards his prognostications in such a crafty manner as always to leave himself a door to escape by, 
in case the event should be contrary to what he had predicted. In the 7th and 8th verses of that chapter, he makes the Almighty to say, At what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up and to pull down and destroy it? If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Here was a proviso against one side of the case. Now for the other side. Verses 9 and 10. And at what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if I do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I shall repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Here is a proviso against the other side. And according to this plan of prophesying, a prophet could never be wrong, however mistaken the Almighty might be. This sort of absurd subterfuge and its manner of speaking of the Almighty as one would speak of a man, is consistent with nothing but the stupidity of the Bible. As to the authenticity of the book, it is only necessary to read it, in order to decide positively that, though some passages recorded therein may have been spoken by Jeremiah, he is not the author of the book. The historical parts, if they can be called by that name, are in the most confused condition. The same events are several times repeated, and that in a manner different and sometimes in contradiction to each other. And this disorder runs even to the last chapter, where the history upon which the greater part of the book has been employed begins anew, and ends abruptly. The book has all the appearance of being a medley of unconnected anecdotes respecting persons and things of that time collected together in the same rude manner as if the various and contradictory accounts that are to be found in a bundle of newspapers respecting persons and things of the present day were put together without date, order, or explanation. I will give two or three examples of this kind. It appears from the account of the 37th chapter that the army of Nebuchadnezzar which is called the army of the Chaldeans, had besieged Jerusalem some time, and on their hearing that the army of Pharaoh of Egypt was marching against them, they raised the siege and retreated for a time. It may here be proper to mention, in order to understand this confused history, that Nebuchadnezzar had besieged and taken Jerusalem during the reign of Jehoiakim the predecessor of Jedekiah, and that it was Nebuchadnezzar who had made Jedekiah king, or rather viceroy, and that this second siege, of which the book of Jeremiah treats, was in consequence of the revolt of Jedekiah against Nebuchadnezzar. This will in some measure account for the suspicion that affixes to Jeremiah of being a traitor, and in the interest of Nebuchadnezzar, whom Jeremiah calls in the 43rd chapter, verse 10, the servant of God. End of section 10.